Well, Roger, it's very nice to talk to you in this strange interview format. Uh, someone I've talked to for ooh, 42 a years. A long time. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so we're rehearsing all sorts of things that have come up during that period. And I suppose my thought goes immediately to time. I mean, you're, everything you've done seems to be like defeating time in one way or another. Being defeated by it normally. Well, I don't it? think so. I think you've defeated it more than most people could ever have done. I don't know whether you remember my office where I used to have a <laughs> clock that went backwards. Well, that would, be, that would be a good motif if we wanted one in the background, I think. Um, but certainly we're thinking about mm, second law of thermodynamics and the mystery yes, of time direction and our consciousness and our awareness of the past. And so we can only talk about the past, unfortunately. It's a great uh, disadvantage that we have. But I was thinking perhaps you would like to say something about how your first mathematical work, in the, perhaps in the Cambridge, I'm, I'm sure it started earlier, but uh, at Cambridge in the 1950s, it seemed to me that so much came out of that. And there are still some puzzles for you then, which are still very much around now. Well, I started off by doing algebraic geometry in, in Cambridge as a graduate student at St. John's College. And uh, I think I, I was misled into thinking that algebraic geometry was geometrical. And I sh very soon learnt that it was basically algebra, uh, where geometry was the thing that I enjoyed and <coughs> found I could do most easily. Uh, so one thing I did was to develop a notation which, well, Hodge was my supervisor originally, and uh, Michael Atiyo was one of the people, a contemporary of mine at the time, which was rather terrifying because I thought all graduate students were like that. And it took me a while to learn that there was something particular about Michael. But um, I, used to, I developed a notation, initially sort of to handle Hodge's lectures, because he gave lectures on differential geometry, and he had these indices all over the blackboard, and... and um, it was not the easiest, <coughs> his were not the easiest lectures to follow. And partly stimulated by that, I developed this notation where um, tensors could be represented with blobs with arms and legs. <coughs> and you could stick them together to form contractions and so on. So it converted uh, geomet uh, algebraic problems to do with tensors into pictures, which I could understand much more easily. Well, that's a whole motif which I was going to ask you about later, in fact, the number uh -huh. of ways in which you've developed ways of seeing things on the page and in, in one's mind that's quite different from the usual way of uh, formal notation. But also, it just strikes me that, I mean, you didn't follow the kind of algebraic geometry of the abs more abstract kind that's, that's been so enormous since that period. There was, I mean, there were tremendous things going on with the abstraction of mathematics, yeah. but you you kept to a geometric viewpoint, which must have been very unfashionable, really, in the Cambridge of that period. I think I was very unfashionable. Although, if you look at my thesis, there's not a single diagram in it. <laughs> but it was all done using... I mean, there were diagrams because I did the algebra by making these tensor pictures and drawing lines and having notations for symmetrizations and skew-symmetrizations and things, and how you manipulated these things. And uh, <coughs> although it was very algebraic what I was doing. It was done in a very geometrical way. But I think this one of the big things that was important in how things developed with me was I developed this general formalism of tensors which 
went beyond the normal idea and that you could include things like negative dimensional tensors. And these turned out to have relevance to spin in quantum mechanics. Uh, but one of the things was I was very mystified by spinners because they seemed to be fractional things where you had a square root of a, a vector or something like that and I couldn't understand how, how you could do that. And uh, Dennis Sharma, who was a great friend of mine when I was in Cambridge, uh, quite early on he sort of, uh, we got m made good friends and uh, <coughs> he was a cosmologist who was very much following the Cambridge line at that time, which was the, the steady state model of cosmology, because Bondi and Gold and Hoyle were all there, these being the originators of this idea, and Dennis was a strong follower of it, which I found very interesting and, and intriguing and philosophically a satisfying picture, where the universe sort of was there all the time. It didn't have a beginning, and the expansion of the universe was compensated by a new material which was created continually which uh, I had problems with later because it was hard to see how you could combine it with the rules of general relativity. And uh, uh, given the choice between general relativity and the steady state model, I would go with general relativity. Uh, but uh, my friendship with Dennis was very important to me because I learned a lot of physics from him. You see, I was doing pure mathematics as a graduate student, but there were at least three courses of lectures I went to. There were a lot of pure courses I went to which were important to me. I remember Philip Hall's courses. Sean, Sean Wiley gave a very nice course on topology and things like that. And, uh, but then I also went to other things which were not really evidently anything to do with what my research project was. One of these being a very beautifully done course by Bondi, Herman Bondi, on cosmology, general relativity and cosmology, which was done with great flair and, and a wonderful course. And another course, equally brilliant in a completely different way, was Dirac's course on quantum mechanics, which was, he was all, everything very logical and, and very beautifully organized. Many of my colleagues said, oh, well, that's just the same as this book, you see. So I said, well, <laughs> I hadn't read his book. So the, the elegance of, the, of what he'd done came out in this lecture. But it was also important to me because, for some reason, I don't know whether Dennis had been talking to him or something, I wasn't quite sure, but, but there was a, it was a course on standard quantum mechanics, which was the first term. And then the next term was to be on quantum field theory. And in this course, he took one week off to talk about two-component spinners. And uh, I had been trying to understand from reading various incomprehensible books about two-component spinners, and they made no sense to me at all. But these, I think it was probably two lectures Dirac gave, and they were just perfect. It became completely clear, the whole subject, which is a bit ironic, because people think of Dirac as a four-component spinner man. But he, in fact, understood, not only understood about two-component spinners, but he developed his, the higher spin versions of his own equation using this formalism. And it seemed to me it was absolutely the right way to do it. So you've already mentioned, I mean, I, I'm thinking that when I was at Cambridge, it was very much divided, pure and applied, and people yes. hardly talked to each other at all. I mean, they, in my time, they were in separate departments, and you had, as an undergraduate, you were supposed to choose which you were, and you just stuck to it. There was a real 
cultural <laughs> yes. block there, but you just ignored that. Uh, that's my, I think I ignored it, yes. Well, well, Dennis was all the time trying to get me interested in, in physics. He's, I had a conversation earlier before I went to Cambridge about the steady state. Wonderful lectures given by Fred Hoyle, which, which there were some issues which I couldn't quite uh, make sense of. And, and I got talking to Dennis, who was a friend of my brother's. My brother Oliver, who was at Cambridge mm -hmm. a year, a couple of, or several years before me, and um, so we struck up a friendship with with Dennis at that point. So he was trying to get me to do physics all the time and get me interested in physics and maybe convert my subject to physics, which I never did because there were too many. I mean, there was too much in the mathematics that I was very much involved with and interested in tensor systems in, in general. Uh, geometry ideas and so on. And a lot of these ideas which I should have learnt then, you see one of them in particular was uh, about sheaf cohomology mm -hmm. because, well they used to call them stacks in those days, theory of stacks you see. I think stacks still mean something but at that time it's what became what call, were called sheaves, sheaves I suppose. And I was baffled by the whole thing. And it was only many, many years later when, when Michael Atiyah made all these things clear. Uh, but at the time, I realized there were things that would have been very useful to me later on had I paid adequate attention then. What did, your, what did William Hodge think of your studying all these different <laughs> things? Did he, was he aware? I mean, I just think to many graduate students now, they'd be horrified by the idea of studying all the completely different courses and not uh, getting going on publishing the papers of the right number and the mm. right Maybe places. in a bit different then, yeah. but, but there yeah. was also a sort of slightly strange thing about... <laughs> <laughs> you see, I started off with Hodge and... Uh, uh, well, there were two other students. One of them gave up quite early. Another one was Michael Hoskin, who went through and did his PhD, but then went into history of science. And the other one was Michael Atiyah. Mm. And uh, as I say, I thought, you know, that they were all like that, more or less. <laughs> and it was quite, because Hodge suggested at one point, well, if I, he sensed I was a little unhappy with the very algebraic problem that he'd set me. And uh, <coughs> so he said, well, you might like to sit in in one of the classes of another student. So that was, I didn't understand a single word of what was going on, but that was Michael, <laughs> Michael Atiyah, you see. And... Uh, I later became very good friends with him. There was another course that I went to when I was at Cambridge at the same sort of time as when I went to Dirac's and Bondi's course. This was a course by a, a logician called Steen. Mm -hmm. And uh, I went to that, which I also found very influential on what happened to me later on, because I learned about Gödel's theorem. I'd vaguely heard about it before, and I found it rather disturbing. You see, I think I would have, prior to going to Cambridge, believed, you know, we're all computers and that's what thinking is, is computation or something, and mainly because I couldn't think of anything else. Uh, and Gödel's theorem I'd vaguely heard of, and it was sort of touted to something which was, uh, showed there were things in mathematics that you couldn't prove. And then when I went to the Steens course, it made quite clear that although you couldn't prove them using some particular system, the mere fact that you trusted that system is something you could give, give reliable, derive reliable conclusions from. That mere belief in the system 
enabled you to transcend the system and you could find statements which had to be true on the basis of your trust in the system even though the, uh, you couldn't prove it using the system. So I found that very striking. Did you even at that time have some inkling that there should be some connection with the physical description of the brain and of matter generally? I think I did, but it wasn't very well formulated. You see, I think I probably did, as a result of Steen's course, come to the view, because I learned about Turing machines as well, that was all part of the course, so Turing machines and Gödel's theorem. And the fact, therefore, because of this understanding that seems to transcend any particular formal system, that uh, there must be something else going on in the brain which is not of a computational character. And I probably learnt from Dirac's course on quantum mechanics. There again is a bit of an irony because I remember the first lecture I went to, he had this little piece of chalk, I think he broke the piece of chalk in two or something. He was talking about superpositions you know, in quantum mechanics. Well, you, if you could do one thing or another, then you could have superpositions of the two. And so he said, you could have a superposition of a piece of chalk over here and over here. And my mind wandered at that point, you see. And he, I remember him saying something about energy or something, but, but I couldn't understand why this was an explanation of anything. I thought it must be because my mind had wandered at that point that I'd missed the point. <laughs> but it worried me ever since. And uh, I think I did formulate the idea that there was a big gap in our understanding of the world in quantum mechanics specifically, and that there probably was some link between that and, and what must be going on in our conscious thinking. But it was pretty vague, and it was only very much later when I heard in a radio talk when Marvin Minsky and Edward mm. Fredkin were mm. talking from a very computationalist point of view, and I could see, well, from that perspective, then you I see why they're taking that view, but it seemed to me ridiculous to extrapolate to that degree. And uh, this was what made me realize that, that I had something to say on this subject, which seemed to be different from what other people had been saying. So I had, had the idea that in the very remote future, I would write some book about trying to get people excited about mathematics and physics, but it didn't really have a focus. But then this thing said, oh, well, I shall try and describe my ideas about what's going on in the mind. I suppose we should, just in case people may not be so familiar with the time scale what we're talking about, because this really only, what you're talking about now was the work which came out in The Emperor's New Mind. Yes, I'm left ahead, yes. And uh, <laughs> in, in, I mean, in fact, you started publishing on this in the mid-80s, and the book was what? Uh, that was in, probably in the, in the 80s, wasn't it? Yes. yes and right. perhaps we should just remind people that the cosmological picture, as you were studying it, from Dennis Sharma. I mean, it was hardly, hardly anything was known at all then, really. It was just the really comparatively local expansion of the neighboring galaxies. In, in well, I think terms, people I guess, regarded right? cosmology as, as just philosophy or something. Yes. I mean, th yeah. there was no reason to believe one thing or another. And it became, well, it was the microwave background. That but that was only later. That was discovered. much later. So yeah, when you right. were introduced to it, it was Absolutely. a very, mm. it was a, a not exactly a clean slate because yeah. the Hubble expansion was known, but nothing like the detail that's right. of today. I'm afraid I am jumping around here. <laughs> You're quite right. The, the but that's just interesting because you took up subjects which then would have been comparatively low profile. I mean, relativity as a subject was not. Uh, mm. was not I mean, Herman Bondi put the new 
modern ideas into it. I think Bondi was a big influence, yes. He gave some radio talks, which were extremely good, very clear. And he he certainly influenced me a lot. And uh, put the subject... Well, it was a very physical way of talking about things, but it was extremely clear. I think I learned a lot also from other colleagues, Felix Pirani in particular, Mm. was somebody who I learned a lot of the mathematics of relativity from. So I think that's where we can, where you were able to put two of these otherwise completely disparate pieces of knowledge together, which is understanding of the null geometry and the spinner representation being relevant yes. to general relativity. Yes. Uh, how did that was that was that's something which came out of the out of geometry and relativity that. Yes, I have to I try and think of do. the order yeah. in which these yeah. things. I was certainly I got interested in in the physics. And you see, Dennis was very, he was, he knew everything that was going on in the world of physics, particularly cosmology and astrophysics and that kind of thing. But he also was interested in the foundations. And uh, he, we used to, he used to drive, we sometimes we'd go to Stratford and go to plays, you see. Mm-hmm. And he would drive in his fancy car, you see, at great speed, and as you went round the, <laughs> the corners at this great speed, he would say, now that's the action of the fixed stars, you see. Oh. Because he had this yes, yes. Marx principle idea yes. was very strong with him, that somehow what determined the local inertia was the distant stars and the galaxies, with this sort of Marxian idea. And, and if you were rota- the rotate Newton's rotating bucket, you see, it's the, reason it bulges at the edges because the influence of the stars is sort of pulling it round, you see. And we used to have these discussions as we would drive to or from um, Stratford. And the idea would be, well, suppose the stars or the galaxies we got rid of them one by one, they all, what would happen to inertia, you see. Mm-hmm. And so I tended to take this to an extreme. So well, you, there's nothing left but the car, you see. Well, then would you feel anything... Mm-hmm. <laughs> You know, that you, you just the inertia will be, according to this view, fixed by the car itself. So I'd go down and say, well, look, suppose you just had two electrons, mm-hmm. you see. Then how do they mm-hmm. know how they're spinning? Or one electron, you see. Well, one electron, does it know which way it's spinning? Or if you have two, or if you have several. And so I started thinking about individual spin systems where you had no notion of direction. It was only what the total spin was when they came together and you bring another one in, does the spin go up or down? What are the rules, you see? And so I developed this idea of spin networks from basically from that idea. I hadn't realised that the spin networks were as early as that and therefore yes. related to your, uh, ne- well, the, to the negative dimensional tensor and yes. the diagram calculus that you'd worked out. That's right, that all, that all came in, yeah, that right, all that came very in early. very early, yes. And then you see the connection also between the dimensionality. See, this mm. was a thing that intrigued me very much, mm. was how you have with spin, spin, you take an electron, a spin half particle, then it's, it's only got two ways it can spin, you see. But how can you have two ways when it's got the whole sphere of directions? Well, that's because of quantum mechanics and spin up and spin down and all the other spins are combinations of them. And then you see the array of the complex combinations of two states, which is really a sphere, and that sphere gives you the directions in space. Well, there you have an intimate relationship between the three-dimensionality of space and the complex numbers of quantum mechanics. And so this kind of struck me as something deep in a way. And then also when I started thinking more about the 
I can't quite think of the order of this, mm. but in the relativity picture, where you now have the, the light cone and you have the directions along the light cone, or if you like the sky, celestial sphere, and you have the different directions on the different points on the sphere. And then again, it becomes useful to represent those as points on the, the Riemann sphere, the complex plane together with infinity. And that sphere is physically a very natural way of thinking about the directions <laughs> in space. Yeah, we see and it all the time. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. You go out in dark night and you see... Well, we see the past, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> you see a, few, yeah. a little bit of it. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, out in space, of course, you have a, a better picture. But somehow, the thinking of that as, a, as, a, as, as the complex sphere uh, was a very crucial way of uh, and, and nailing down the space-time dimensionality, three space and one time, and only then do you get a light cone, which is uh, a complex structure. Complex so you had Dirac's two spinners, which is completely contrary to most, yeah, most yeah. I mean, what one pe people would think, that he was wedded to these four, four yes, spinner yes. and the gammas and everything. And yet that gave you an insight from, from quantum mechanics into space-time and relativity, yep. which is, again, not the direction one would naturally think of. No, I, I uh, just yeah. went, yeah. I tended to go my own way. I think, I, I mean, I was always, you see, when I was at school, I remember particularly in Canada, I was in Canada mm. during the war years, and uh, I was extremely slow. And you need my mathematics papers. I wouldn't get very good marks. And one, in fact, once I got moved down a class because I was very bad at doing mental arithmetic. But there was a teacher, we had a very insightful teacher, Mr. Stinnett, I think he was called, and he realized that if I was given enough time, I might do rather well in the test, you see. So he said, all right, we're going to have a test today. It's the whole, uh, usually we, just this, this, uh, this period, and you're supposed to finish this, but I'm going to let you have any, as long as you like. So I would be working away. The next period would be a play period, and people would be outside enjoying themselves. I'd be still plugging away. Occasionally, I'd go on into the one after that, still working away at this test. And then I would do very well. I would get, you know, 98% or something. On, and it was a huge difference. And I think the thing was that I was not good at remembering things, you see, you know, if I could my tables or whatever it happened to be. But if I had enough information so I could work it out each time, you see, so I think I, it was something I always tried to work these things out for myself. Of course, that's not much good if you're trying to do a school exam. <laughs> but later on, it kind of served, served its purpose. So I had to think these through, these things on my own terms, <coughs> rather than learning about them from a book or whatever it was. So I would guess that if you put forward these... Uh, I mean, the particle physicists of that period wouldn't have been very interested in... in whether it's two spinners or, <laughs> no, or no, the no. relationship of SL2C to the no. <laughs> uh, and this kind of thing. But th and that your direction went into, into, into relativity, but really you had a great deal that was coming from quantum mechanics as yes. well as from classical geometry That's in the background. True. Is that, is that, is that <coughs> Quantum mechanics certainly was, was a big influence on me. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know exactly when I firmly thought, well, something's got to be done, done about yeah. quantum mechanics, that you have to change the rules at some level. I think I felt that pretty early, but I couldn't put a, a date to that. But nevertheless, the idea that, that quantum features 
very fundamentally at the level of small things. Um, yes, that was crucial. Uh, what and what point also is just understanding the importance of null coordinates and the light rate and the conformal yes, structure yes. and, and that the metric is secondary and your observation on the, the moving sphere um, yes. in 1959 was it's just such a, I mean, just a two-page <laughs> yes. working out of that idea but yeah, it yeah. destroys a whole lot of talk about people being squashed up when they move in uh, relativity. <laughs> yes. uh, yes. did, was that, uh, and that was I'm that not was sure where that rank yeah. comes in your publications, but fairly, it's... Uh it was before, I, you see, I went to America. This was probably in... I went to America in 59, I guess mm. it was. In 1958, I went to the a conference on general relativity and gravitation in, in Royaumont, near Paris. And uh, that was shortly after I'd been thinking about spinners and relativity. Um, yeah, I, well, Dennis, Dennis Sharm again, you see, he was very keen uh, on getting people together who he thought might have something to say to each other. And I think, am I right, in 55 was the first general relativity conference, uh, and 58 must have been the second, is that, I mean, it was very early days. Yes, it wasn't the first, the first right? one was probably Chapel Hill, I can't remember, there were, there were two, and I can't remember which was called the first one. I see. Chapel Hill was one, and Paris was the second. But it wouldn't be a comparatively small body of people that took Relatively speaking, any but there were a lot of people I got to know well, and uh -huh. knew them later on, yeah, Ted I Newman, uh, lots of people. It was a big influence on me, but it was important to me because, well, I just, let me just backtrack a little bit. It would have been 57, probably. I'm not quite sure of the date. But Dennis persuaded me to go down to King's College, London, where David Finkelstein was giving a talk about the Schwarzschild solution and getting rid of the singularity or something. So, well, that sounds interesting. I wasn't working on general relativity, really, then. You see, I was thinking about these spinners and so on. And uh, he gave a talk where he showed how you could extend the Schwarzschild solution to within the horizon, what we now call the horizon, yeah. but people used to think of the Schwarzschild singularity. And uh, he did it in one past and the future and then showed how to stick these together into what was now called the cross-core uh, extension. And this made a big impression on me. But it was kind of curious because Finkelstein at that time was his main interest was general relativity, and mine was in spinners and playing around mm -hmm. with things in the small and quantum mechanics and so on. And we, in a certain sense, were combinatorial. I was doing spin yeah, networks. Doing and so I explained yeah. to him about spin networks. And he, from then on, went on and did combinatorial things, and I picked up and did general relativity after that. So we sort of swapped roles. But I can see how that would have touched all sorts of things. It needs the null coordinates to, to do that. Uh, well, it was, it was, you see, there, w there was... The history of it was sort of like this. I went to the lecture, and I was very impressed by how you got rid of this so-called Schwarzschild singularity, but you still had the singularity in the middle. Yes. So I thought somehow, okay, you've pushed it from one place, but it's still there. Mm -hmm. So I began to think, is there a, a general argument to show yeah. that singularities have to be there? Now, I had no mechanism, no, nothing to try and tackle this problem. The only thing I, I had, which I'd been studying, were the spinners. So I thought, well, look, let me just see how spinners work to try and describe relativity. So then I, I did that, and I looked at the Vyrock thing, and, and it all kind of came out so beautifully. 
and the vial curvature being totally symmetric spinner and all this stuff was was uh, and no one else had done that but Felix Pirani did things was that it was, that, it, was, was, that was it was Lou Whitten Ed ah, Whitten's father right. who had I didn't know about it ah. Felix Pirani mentioned there was this paper by Lou Whitten where he had actually applied spinners and looked at the invariance. There were some things which weren't quite right in the paper. Um, I, I sort of looked at it and corrected that and, and, and did some other things that he hadn't, he hadn't done, like the canonical representation into four principal null directions and so on. And all that stuff. But somehow it all fitted together in a much more beautiful way than I had thought. And it was as much that as, as David Finkelstein's lecture, I think, which dragged me into, into studying general relativity in a serious way. I'd been interested in it before that. My first interest, curiously enough, my first encounter with general relativity, apart from my brother Oliver vaguely describing it to me, was a little book by Schrodinger, mm -hmm. Space-Time Structure, which is a really nice little book, <laughs> apart from the last chapter where he goes on to his own funny ideas. But most of it was a very beautiful explanation explanation of the tensor calculus and so on. So I learned about that even before I went to Cambridge. But then uh, picking up things from Felix Pirani and, and Dennis and, and so I, and then I went to the Royalmont Conference which was in 58, yes, that's 58 yeah. I think, and Dennis very generously, he was, one of the, he was one of the principal speakers at this meeting, he said well look I've got an hour's talk given to me, I'll let you have half my time. I thought that was extremely generous of him. So I gave my little talk on the, on the spinners. I forget whether it was an hour and a half a time, whether it was 40, 40 minutes and I had 20 minutes, I can't remember. So it was a rather hurried little talk on showing how you translate these tensor quantities into spinners and how beautifully it fit in with, with the ideas of general relativity. That was actually motivated by what became the singularity theorems in yes. the mid-60s. And that was right. before you'd actually... I mean, this was anyway. That's before we really started on on uh, publishing. Yes, work, there was certain certain. Yeah, well, I published no. the thing on the on the spinners. Yes, which is nineteen sixty, but then um, it was more. You, you, I went to Princeton. I was in two years. Well, a year and a half in Princeton and Syracuse, uh, and I got influenced by John Wheeler. I think on the idea that you have. Well, it may have been a little after that. Yes, I think it was at the... There was a conference in Warsaw where I... That's where I started talking about conformal infinity. And I think then, um, in the, in the mid-60s, early 60s, um, it became clear from the observations by Martin Schmidt that there were... These were the first observations of quasars. And I remember Wheeler getting very excited about this and saying, look, this tells us there are objects which are really down to the scale of their Schwarzschild singularity. Before, we always used to think, oh, well, this Schwarzschild so-called singularity, this tiny little thing would be, wouldn't have any real relevance to physics whatsoever. But here, it became clear that there was something funny was going on, where you really had things which varied. They, were, they must be sufficiently big because of their, this energetic and they must be sufficiently small because they varied within weeks or days or weeks or something, so they can't be too big, and therefore they must be of their sort of size that their Schwarzschild radius was. That was what we now call a black hole. 
and uh, the name black hole hadn't emerged at that stage. But Wheeler was very interested in this idea about whether singularities were generic or not. Were you aware of the, uh, I mean, uh, you were aware of Oppenheimer's 1939? Yes. Yes, Marvel well, this was man, something yeah. that Wheeler very made a big point. Yes, he would have known about all about it. Yes. Yes. So the, the various papers that Oppenheimer was involved in, yeah. and particularly the Oppenheimer-Snyder paper, yes. where you, just before the war, where you had this collapse of a very artificial material, yes. sort of dust, and very artificial, and it was exactly symmetrical. And, and then he had this model of it collapsing to a point. But it was regarded by many people as highly artificial. These idealizations wouldn't apply generally particularly because the Russians, these were Lifshitz and Kalatnikov, mm. seemed to have proved that the singularities were a very special thing and they would not occur generally. Now, I'd sort of seen a little bit about their proof and I couldn't imagine you could really prove something like this the way they were doing it. So I started trying to think about this in, in other ways, geometrically, kind of visualizing what it would be like in, inside a collapsing star and trying to convincing myself it had to be a non-local argument that you wouldn't be able to prove anything from purely local considerations and then there was this idea about what's called a trapped surface which came about in a rather curious way oh, so well i was talking to yeah ivor robinson i, I was at, uh, at that time i was in Birkbeck college in london and ivor robinson who was a friend of mine i learned a lot of things about spinners and self-dual things and so on, which became important later in Twister theory. And uh, he was talking about something completely different, politics probably. <laughs> and, uh, and we came to a street and across the street and conversation stopped then. And then we got to the other side. He started talking again, you see. And then when he, he, went, he went, on, went home, you see, went where he was going. And I remember thinking at the end of this, a feeling of elation and I couldn't pinpoint it. Now, mm -hmm. why am I feeling like this? You see, so I went back to all the things I'd been thinking of during the day. And then I remembered crossing the street. And when I was halfway across the street, a thought occurred to me. And this was evidently this characterization of, of a collapse, what we call the trapped surface, that this characterization, which was a global condition, and it would tells you that this star has reached a point of no return. And so when that I realized that idea, I then developed a pretty well the same day, rough, roughed out a proof that you had to get singularities. But the, uh, that's misleading in the sense that the techniques were things that I had developed a bit earlier, partly, although never published, as an argument going back to the steady state model, because oh, I was yeah. interested in steady state, but I also interested in general relativity, and I was trying to see, is it possible that you could have something like steady state consistent with general relativity? If it was an exactly symmetrical case, you could see there'd be problems with energy. But if it's irregular, maybe you'll get away with it. But then I developed an argument with these cones and focusing and so on to realize that that wouldn't help, that you'd still be in trouble. I never published that. But there was an argument in the, the which was another thing in the Royal Society I had to try and prove something about asymptotics, which I wasted a lot of time. But I developed these techniques. I thought I was wasting a lot of time, but I developed the techniques which became just what were needed in the case of the collapsing. So I see. So those ideas in differential geometry and topology, which you needed there, were developed for the problem of the 50s with yes. steady state, which was 
Well, she was blasted. I mean, as soon as the Big Bang was uh, the, the, the microwave was background, the, the yeah, yeah, was discovered, yeah. it was really out of the, <laughs> out of the picture. Yes, but yeah. it turned out just the thing for black holes, which were fantasy in the in the fifties. Yeah, but uh, yeah. Oh, oh, very far from fantasy now. I mean, they that's right. Well, it was curious how the how the thing developed because the, the first I went to, to a lot of the early what are called the Texas conferences mm. on relativistic astrophysics and I went to the first one which was a lot of the stuff about the the quasars these mm -hmm. these uh, things that Mar Martin Schmidt had seen and Wheeler was so excited about and so on and uh, and Roy Kerr at that point had found the, the solution known as the Kerr solution which is can be interpreted as a rotating black hole it wasn't totally clear at that stage that you could interpret it that way but um, this did become clear and knowledge of these things was important in, in what I did at that stage. The to show that you had to get singularities under extremely general circumstances. No, no symmetry assumed, no particular equations of state. You didn't have to assume the dust that, that Oppenheimer and Schneider had. You could have a quite general material as long as you didn't violate energy, energy positivity. So the obvious thing in the late 60s was to go completely into the new realm of general relativity <laughs> that's opened up by modern astronomy and cosmology. And what did you do? You started thinking about elementary particle physics. Well, Twister theory. <laughs> but it was going along at the same yes, time, yes. Yes. <laughs> yes, it was. Well, yeah, they were definitely at the same time. But you see, these were things that were nagging at me for a long time. I just couldn't... I have to give Engelbert Schucking a lot of credit mm. here because... On my earlier trip to the, this is the first trip to the States where I, I went after, to, to first to work with John Wheeler in Princeton, and then I went to Syracuse and I shared an office with Engelbert Schucking. And he kept on talking about conformal mm. maps and the importance of conformal transformations mm. and how Maxwell's equations were mm. invariant. And for what reason, I wasn't sure at mm. that time. But another thing he stressed was the importance in quantum field theory of the notion of positive frequency. And these things stuck with me. And they were very important in the development of twister theory. Partly the conformal stuff to, to represent radiation by squashing infinity down, making a conformal boundary to space-time. That, that was one of the ideas. But the idea of the positive frequency was very crucial to twister theory. I remember I made a I knew I wanted some kind of geometry which was complex in some fundamental way, but was really trying to describe the world as we know it as well, and had to try and bring quantum theory in. And I made a huge table with all sorts of topics and arrows going between them and things like this. And, and, uh, but the Engelbert thing about the positive frequency, which nobody in, in quantum field theory tended to stress that at that time. It was not... I think they think of it like physicists, physicists generally do in terms of yeah. Fourier, Fourier analysis. Yes. So then it's sort of trivial, it's just plus and minus. I think it was the combination, and yes, of the Fourier analysis and the fact that if conformal things were important, Fourier analysis is not appropriate because yes. it's not so conformally yeah. variant. Nevertheless, the fact that you're choosing positive frequency as opposed to negative yeah. is conformally variant. And this idea of extending so you have your Riemann sphere again, you've got your function on the equator, 
a real valued function, that's the real numbers on the equator. And then if you can extend your function into the holomorphically into the north or the south, this gives you positive and negative frequency. Now for that's a, such a beautiful idea. Can that be extended in some global way to the whole of space-time? And this was nagging me, you see. And I wanted something where, see, if you complexify, you, you don't have splitting into two halves. You see, this Riemann sphere, you complexify the circle, you've got the Riemann sphere. That's the real part splits it into two halves, and so you get the positive and the negative frequencies. Or maybe I think it's negative and positive, but never mind. And so I kept thinking, well, what about Minkowski space? Well, if you complexify, it doesn't split anything into two halves, you see. <laughs> but then I remember being driven, from, I think it was shortly after the Kennedy assassination. I was in America, you see, in, in, da in, in, um, in Austin, Texas. And the families, respective families, this was the Rindlers and Oshvats, had gone down to uh, San Antonio. I can't remember where it was exactly. And in the car back, I was... Pishtashvat was driving me, and he's not very talkative, so there's a lot of silence, you see. And I began thinking about this thing that Ivor Robinson had about how you can take a, a, a light ray and somehow push it into the complex, and then you get these funny solutions of the Maxwell equations, which are non-singular and twisting. And so I tried to understand what was going on, and then I realized that these things about the Clifford parallels, I can't quite remember the... I realized that the, yes, that the, the solutions of the Maxwell equations must have their null directions along these Clifford parallels. So I vaguely knew, I knew about the Clifford parallels already, but the fact that this is what you got, I, I realized this must be what you got, this configuration. So the, the twisting of the lines around these tor in nested tori, uh, that configuration, which I'd sort of known about from the Clifford parallels, when I got home, I just translated it all into two-component spinners, and it kind of dropped out, and that was twister, twister theory. And, and then, you see, you had the two... The thing was split into two halves automatically. You had the, the real, the space of the light rays, and then it's a sort of mild complexification into these two halves, the right-handed ones and the left-handed ones, and that this was the analog of the splitting of the Riemann sphere into two halves. It took a long time before realizing how it really was that, <laughs> so it was because it needed the cohomology. But it's so striking. I mean, now the, the twister variables are used by physicists, but they tend to call it a half Fourier transform, and you think of it in a completely linear way, really. Nothing like this geometric characterization. And yet, if, if we're going to get away from doing everything in Minkowski space, we really need to have some picture yeah. of what a particle is, an antiparticle is, and so on, which doesn't depend on... I mean, I don't know if you... We may be coming on to this, really. Is there, yeah. there are things of that period which you worried about, which I think are still very open Well, it's, it's very interesting. <laughs> I mean, it, and as you know, <laughs> we had this group developing <laughs> ideas of twister theory and these meetings um, every Friday pretty well and discussions, fairly broad-ranging broad discussions on various topics. And then you, almost single-handedly, developed these ideas of twisted diagrams and and uh, uh, and I always admired you how much you you know you, you you felt this was a thing to do and you stuck with it 
Uh, well, they were your diagrams, but I kept them alive until you it kept, could it combine with other people's you uh, developed discoveries them in, ways in a which different, I had, different uh, way. I hadn't conceived of but, at all. Uh, yes. I'm just thinking we... I suppose I'm thinking this. You've always worried about what a wave function really, really is. Yes. And a lot of people don't worry about this. They just write down the formalism of quantum mechanics and yeah. linear and so forth. But do you like things that we can see, in a sense? I mean, I think yeah. seeing is... It's very important to I all you do, whether true. it's the notation yeah, yeah, yeah. or just the business of light or yeah. the action of consciousness and seeing the truth of, of a Gödel statement. I mean, this is something that's very important. But and I, I feel you yeah. don't think we, we can see what a wave function is. is, that, is that, would that be a Well, I always worry about people saying, oh, well, quantum mechanics just yeah. tells us pictures are no yeah. use anymore, sort of thing. Yeah. See. Just calculate, the yeah. forget about the pictures. But I never was happy with that. I always wanted to try and picture anything I could. Certainly with spin, ideas with spin and so on, which were, seem to be very important to develop the geometrical ideas as far as one could. But there are certain very odd things about quantum mechanics. Well, I think, as I wrote in one of my books, that Shadows of the Mind, they, quantum mechanics has two kinds of mysteries. I think people tend to confuse mm -hmm. them. So the ones I call the, the Z mysteries, which are the puzzle mysteries, uh, which are things which are true of the world and baffling, but you can understand them. Mm -hmm. I mean, we, it's not quite the way we used to think the world was like. Uh, spin doesn't behave like a little yeah. cricket ball or something spinning around a well-defined axis. There's something much more subtle going on. But it can be understood, and it's consistent, and it makes sense. And it makes beautiful sense, often. And there are the, the X mysteries. X ones were the ones which were paradoxes and the Schrodinger's cat. So you have quantum mechanics tells you, without a very difficult experiment, although not so nice on the cat, you can put it into a superposition of being dead and alive. And so Schrodinger was basically showing, well, look, this is what my Schrodinger, mm -hmm. Schrodinger's equation is telling you you could have as a cat which is dead and alive at the same time. That's nonsense. <laughs> you don't see cats like that. So although he never quite put it like that, it seemed to me he was saying, look, there's something missing. There's something in the theory which is not adequate. And uh, Einstein felt the same way. And Dirac, surprisingly. Oh, yes, that's felt Dirac the same uh, in that, because that's one reason yes. I, I was interested to hear about it. He was very quiet about it. Yeah. He got more, you can see on the, on the, on the web, there are some lectures, yeah. Dirac, where he explicitly says this. And I, I, I have trouble finding the original quotes, because I, I know there are some quotes where he quite clearly says that, that the theory is, is not... Well, yes, it says in the, in the Bohr-Einstein debates, he says, well, you know, Bohr is normally thought of to have won these, but mm -hmm. I think maybe time will tell that Einstein mm. perhaps mm. Um, had more of the right idea. Did you get that scepticism from him? Uh, no. Wait, no, that wasn't a feature of what he was talking about. He was very... About reluctant, I think, mm -hmm. to express his inner opinions. Mm -hmm. you, very hard. Mm -hmm. I had a curious experience once. I was asked by the philosophy department at Boston University. You see, the philosophers like to have you know, a talk given by somebody, and then there will be somebody to contradict him yeah, or something, you see. So he, they asked me if I'd like if do this, you see. Who was I supposed to contradict? Well, they actually, they'd heard about Dirac <laughs> commented <laughs> about how projective geometry had been useful in his thinking, you see. So they had him, and, and rashly, I said, oh, well, okay, I'll make some comments. You can't, you can't refute that, because that's an obvious idea. I couldn't, yeah. yes, that's <laughs> absolutely, yes. So he yes. gave his talk, see, Dirac gave his talk, 
And it was a very elegantly mm. put Dirachian uh, talk on projective geometry. Yeah. Just on projective geometry. No physics, no, re no influence on his own thinking or anything. It was just a talk on projective geometry. So I'm afraid I slightly made, well, I think some of the authors were hoping you might reveal <laughs> some of your <laughs> inner thinking. <laughs> and then I gave a little talk since I took a leaf out of his book and gave a little talk on twister theory, <laughs> oh, okay. which yeah. is my version of projective geometry and physics. But that was slightly curious. But um, projective geometry had a big influence on me, of course. Oh, actually, actually that's backtracking a bit, but, but that really would have seemed an old-fashioned subject in, the yes. in your time. It's something that Victorian... Yes. I mean, that people just dropped out of the syllabus by that time, I think. Almost. Oh, just a little Almost. unit here and I there. I just caught I it. You yes, see, yeah. we, I went to... When I was at University College London, that's where I did my undergraduate yeah. work, there was... Uh, in fact, geometry was quite a big part of the, the syllabus. You had applied mathematics, you had sort of algebra, no, you applied mathematics, analysis, and then algebra and geometry, I think it was like that. Mm -hmm. But the geometry was a significant part of that. And there was a, a, an old guy called Wren, T.L. Wren, who was a very great purist. He started off, you know, there were just two axioms, you know, any, there's a line through any two points. And if there's a line through these two points and through these and it meets there, then these two meet here. <laughs> How much could you prove from that, you see? Occasionally you needed another axiom a bit later on, but, but I kind of like, no, everybody else hated it, but I rather liked oh, the course, you see. I, I thought it was very nice to see these kind of very primitive ideas developing into, into geometry. So there was some projective geometry, which I learnt there, which was quite important mm -hmm. in my own understandings. Uh, now, what was I going to say here? Well, you brought it back in Dirac's yeah. context. Yes. Um, and I was just thinking that it did come from your earlier experience. In a way, it was quite unusual. I yes. Think that, I think. So it was just, I caught the tail end of it. Well, yeah. I think there was, an, the, the, um, there was another geometer who came in after, but then it kind of faded away and mm. got almost removed from the syllabus yes. completely. And then it swung back a bit. But, but it was considered to be unfashionable. And even when you did what was called algebraic geometry, there was very little geometry in the sense of <laughs> what you could actually see yes. Yes. in it. So I didn't take to that too well, although I you know, tried to put as much in as I could. But a lot of it was translated out when I translated my diagrams into, into some incomprehensible notation, which is, I'm afraid, what my thesis end up, ended up as. But uh, the geometry was always important to me, but it sort of went more into the physics, like geometry of quantum mechanics and, uh, and relativity, general relativity and that sort of thing.